We are continuing our bumper sticker series this morning, and uh, I want to just begin with a little uh, thing to let you know. I don't believe in the continuation of time, um, and you might think that's strange, but let me give you an example. And I'm going to lose you when I use the word train A. So train A is headed this way, all right? And uh, some of you are, all right, but just, <laughs> yeah, see, it's too much, but... <laughs> so, <laughs> I apologize. I'm sorry, Brad. <laughs> Anyone else, I wouldn't have said anything. But <laughs> so, uh, so train A is going this way, all right? Uh, your pet mosquito is going this way, all right? So it's in, like, in the woods. Uh, and the train A is going this way. The mosquito is going this way. The mosquito connects, sadly, with the front of the train, right? And so what happens is the mosquito changes direction and goes this way. Makes sense, right? Uh, because, probably because he's connected to the front of the train. So at some point, the mosquito stops and changes direction, right? Because you can't change direction without stopping, right? And so the mosquito's moving this way, and then he stops, and he stops at the moment he's connected to the train, and then he turns around. But at that moment that he's connected to the train and he's stopped, because he's connected to the train, it means the train has to be stopped as well. Make sense? So train going, hits mosquito, stops, train keeps going. All right? It's necessary. And so let's say there are two mosquitoes. So ding, stop, ding, stop, keep going. All right? Now let's say there's infinity mosquitoes. So mosquito after mosquito after mosquito, and the train is making a series of connections with mosquitoes where the train, though it looks like it's in motion, is continuing to stop repeatedly. So motion is necessarily just a continuation of several stops. So when you're running and you feel like you're moving slow, it's because your continuation of stops isn't moving at a rate that you appreciate. Uh, now, why does that have implications? Because if time exists just as a series of moments, that has theological implications because Jesus died at a certain point in time for all points in time. And if time is a series of snapshots and not just a continuation of the you know, relative space of mass in our universe, then we run into problems. Makes sense, right? <laughs> Here's why we don't like to think about that. Because that's all very confusing. And if motion is just a series of stop and time exists, the snapshots within this historical thing that we experience in a linear fashion, but maybe God doesn't experience time in a linear fashion because he exists outside of it and independent of the progress of matter. What happens to our theology? This kind of stuff for me is really exciting. Uh, I have, my first degree is in mathematics. I can prove uh, where the center of the universe is. It's the place that zero is furthest from one, but if you say you have a one, or like the, I think you're lying, because that's way too specific. Um, there is, uh, it, I, at infinity, zero and one are basically equal, and so the number system falls apart. So when you grew up and you took math tests, whatever you answered, it was right somewhere in the universe. Uh, so, <laughs> that's, it's true, you can write that down on your paper. All these answers are correct somewhere in the universe. Hand it in, your teacher can't argue. That's a little treat, kids. But um, your teacher may fail you, but they're wrong, all right? And you can appeal it and be like, I wish you were more educated and understood my answers. <laughs> Christianity and science tends to run apart from each other, doesn't it? 
and, and we tend to end up with this reputation when we have Christianity and science put together because science seems to be kind of out there and we want to be like, no, nah, I just believe in God. I don't know about that. I'm going to leave that alone. I'm going to follow this over here, uh, which is where we end up with today's bumper sticker, uh, just for some fun. Uh, you've probably seen this. There was the fish. The fish can you see that? The truth fish is eating Darwin's fish or a fish named Darwin, a fish that has legs, and so the other fish make fun of it. That's sad. Um, but there is this fish, and the fish is an ancient symbol of Christianity, a very, very ancient symbol of Christianity. And then in the, I believe it was in the 80s, uh, some atheists made this uh, fish that said Darwin and had legs. Very catchy, uh, very interesting, and things like that. And then, because they made that, we wanted to establish that the Jesus fish is larger and uh, we ate the Darwin fish, to which the Darwin people would say that's natural selection in action. Thank you for proving my point, right? Uh, so <laughs> kind of an interesting catch-22 that we got ourselves into. So they, when we developed this, uh, this is T-Rex eating the Jesus fish, uh, which I don't know why he's doing that, uh, because the Jesus fish just ate the Darwin fish, and then T-Rex came. I just thought this one was hilarious. Don't you think it's funny? Somebody sat around and thought, what would be the funny thing that I could do? And, uh, and they decided that was the thing. But this Jesus fish on the bumper sticker, and you can see all sorts of them now, right? There's one that's a Jesus fish, and it says sushi, because uh, they appreciate sushi. Uh, there's one uh, that these people, because of a uh, school board who decided that they needed to teach intelligent design, so people set up a, a parody religion where they had the flying spaghetti monster uh, was their god, and they set up a parody religion to try to infiltrate the schools, and just uh, because they they couldn't appeal the decision legally and stuff like that. So, just hilarious stuff that people have done with this symbol. And the symbol is an ancient symbol of Christianity, but now in our world, because of the ability of people to make things and mass produce them quickly, uh, we have this kind of debate that's happening between evolution or in science and Christianity on people's bumpers. And if you are, if you know, the way to solve most difficult questions is on your bumper, right? Like if you're wondering about something, drive around and someone will tell you what you should think on their bumper, right? And I don't know anyone in my life who was driving around who was an atheistic evolutionary and said, you know what, when I saw that Jesus fish eating the Darwin fish, it all made sense, right? Uh, which, if you have that on your bumper, that's great. It's hilarious, all right? Because, you're, it's because of the double meaning involved and you're proving their point. But anyways... Uh, which don't tell the fundamentalists that, but they, they, that will get them all riled up. So maybe do. But when it comes down to the role of Christianity and the role of science, and we're not going to talk about evolution specifically. I don't think we have time today to treat it respectfully. Uh, when it comes down to Christianity and science, sometimes uh, the relationship that um, modern Christianity has had with science is difficult. Historically, Science uh, from its, in its early development has been something that Christians were engaged with. Uh, and they saw this because of some verses in the Scripture. That, can we get those verses? Here we go. Um, Isaiah 40, 22. This is Old Testament stuff written thousands of years ago. It is he who sits above, he is God, sits above the circle of the earth. So the earth is circle. 
and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, so it's big and we're small, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. All right, so he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. So in Isaiah, there's scripture that talks about earth existing in this universe thing hanging on nothing. Um, 2 Samuel 22:16 talks about currents in the oceans. So the channels of the sea we're seeing, the foundations. Uh, no, sorry, this talks about valleys. Other translations use the word valley. So under the sea, where they couldn't have gone, uh, they would understand what the depths of the sea looks like. The channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare through the rebuke of the Lord at the blast of his breath of his nostrils. Uh, these kind of uh, scriptures, and many like them, point to scientific knowledge existing in the Bible before it was discoverable. If you look in uh, Leviticus, uh, like chapters, I wrote this down, uh, 14, 15, 16, or from 12 to 16, uh, there's all sorts of like sanitation and health laws from different diseases or molds that are growing in, in isolation that people need because of different things. They would have no way of knowing that a germ exists or that it is transferable and God told them in science. Now, if we start using literalism to interpret every possible scripture, we run into problems, problems like this. Revelation 7.1, after they saw this, the four angels stand at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. We interpret this literally, it means the earth is square with four corners, right? You see that? They're standing at the four corners of the earth. So we have to say, well, it seems that that's not true, or we argue against every one who's seen the world from outer space, uh, like all of us. So then Psalm 19.6, this is talking about the sun. Verse 4, 5, and 6 are talking about the sun. It is rising from the ends of the heaven, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from the heat. Saying that, the sun actually rotates around the earth. So you take Psalm 4, or sorry, Psalm 19, verse 4, 5, and 6, and you can prove that the sun orbits the earth, which we run into problems. If you're going to interpret things literary, liter, literally and try to use all of Scripture like it's a science textbook, which Scripture doesn't present itself as a literal science textbook. We would say the sun rises in the east, it sets in the west. We say that. That's not a scientific statement, is it? We understand it's the earth that's rotating, it's the earth that's spinning and moving around the sun. We're a, the sun is the center of our system. That's why we call it a solar system. But in our everyday language, we talk about these things. And so there's different scriptures that talk about these things in just everyday language. And so what ends up happening isn't so much a debate between science and Christianity. It's, for the Christians, it's more of a debate over how do we use our Bibles? And what role does the Scripture have uh, in our ability to know and understand the universe that's around us? So a lot of times we end up with this war mentality, like it's the war between Christianity and science. That is why the truth fish is trying to eat the Darwin fish. It's a dominant Uh, We're going to dominate and we're going to win and we're going to take over. The problem with that is is that it's fake. Uh, Exactly half of evangelical Christians believe that, like if we were to poll people, they believe that science and faith can be complementary and work together uh, where both disciplines can grow. 
And, and the number of scientists uh, who uh, ascribe to Christianity or who pray or attend church in comparison to the uh, like average for normal society, the scientists are barely below what that average is for normal society. So when someone says, I was watching TV last night, and uh, they said, it was a liberal show, that, and uh, they said, most scientists are atheists. Well, that's only true if you say that most humans are, in America are atheists, because the percentage of it is lower. So the war is actually something that's made up. It's the war between Christian and science or Christianity and atheism is something that is used for it makes better media, it gets better donations, it makes a better story if we have a war going on. And we have some things in our history that are unfortunate. In 1633, the church condemned Galileo for saying that the, uh, well, for making scientific advances that we now agree with. Whoops. Uh, we have, if your only exposure to Christianity is when you turn on the news and we see that we're fighting this science textbook or that science textbook, then you can start to think and understand that Christians and Christianity take a warfare mentality or an attack mentality towards the disciplines that are scientific. But this confrontive stance, both from the Christian side and from the non-Christian or the scientific or the atheist side, all of it, what it really does is denies the validity and the understanding of both sides. Does this make sense? So if you come from science and you think the goal of science is to war against Christianity, you misunderstand the joy that can be involved with science. And if you come from Christianity and you try to war against science, you misunderstand the joy that exists within Christianity. The way to avoid that is to admit that your discipline, science, uh, isn't the only source of knowledge or facts in the world. Uh, I read an article online this week. It's, it talked about this. If you have a pot boiling, uh, you're going to make some tea because you have friends coming over. And you ask the question, why is the water boiling in the kettle? There's a scientific answer, right? It heated up. When it got to a certain number of degrees, it boils. Then there's the other answer, like the, pot is, the water is boiling in the pot because I have friends coming over, which isn't not really a scientific answer, it's more of a social answer. And if you merely did a science experiments or a scientific method on the water, you would never learn just from observing the water that there was something going on outside of it. And so science isn't the only source of facts about the world. Also, and this is difficult for some of us to hear, the Bible is not the only source of facts about our world. I had a friend when I was younger. Uh, he was going to college, a Bible college, and he decided that he was no longer going to read any books except the Bible. He failed out, <laughs> which is hilarious. But he would tell his Christian professors at his Christian school that he's not reading any books about the Bible because everything he needs to know is in the Bible. Unfortunately, the Bible does not help me work my iPhone, all right? The Bible does not program my DVR or teach me how to drive my car or fix it when it's broke. Does, do you understand what that means? The Bible will not help you mow the yard, all right? It'll tell you you should, but it will, like it doesn't have that verse, but it, you should work. 
And then I have the verse, mow your yard every Saturday, all right? Uh, but there is some responsibility that is taught in the scriptures. Uh, if you're wondering, should I spend my life playing Xbox or actually take care of my family? There's, the Bible has something to say about that. Um, but the Bible can't be seen as the only thing that's needed or necessary for everything that there is in life. Both of those facts, that science isn't the only source of information in the world and that the Bible isn't the only source of information, are good for Christians to know and good for non-Christians to know as well. Um, I'm going to quote, this is Pope John Paul II says this, and he says it in a good way. Um, but he says, Science can purify religion from error and from superstition. Religion can purify science from idolatry and from false absolutes. And so each draws each other into a wider world, which is something that we seek in Christianity and something that we seek in science. So we have a couple options if we're going to engage science in our world. Uh, first option is to see them at war. We can take our faith and do everything we can in our faith to disprove anything that we interpret as disproving the things that we interpret from the Bible. This is the Galileo approach. Someone brings science. Our understanding of the Bible is that they're wrong, and so we condemn them and call them a heretic. We can, second, see them as separate and irreconcilable. Theology over there, science, all sciences over there. They're two separate disciplines. Don't talk about them in, this, in the room. Don't bring them together. Three, we can ignore it. We can try to uh, actually have less knowledge about things that disrupt our faith because it disrupts our faith. Uh, this seems like a silly option, but this is the option I think most people pick. I don't understand that, and so I'm going to try to avoid knowing anything about that. Does that make sense? Like, I don't know about the whole Darwin thing, but I know that I think somebody said that that's bad, and so I'm going to try to avoid learning anything about that. So there's an ignorance defense later on if I found when I get to St. Peter and, and he's got a Darwin fish on a leash. Um, that's a joke. All right. Uh, <laughs> fourth option, and the one that I hope that I can push you towards today, is to engage and move towards a complementary understanding of science and theology where we approach it and we invite others to approach it with knowledge and with humility. Uh, let me talk about this. This is my informative text about this. John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. All right? The Christian tradition, well, one of the Christian fundamentalist traditions is that it wasn't wine, it was just grape juice. Um, not true, all right? Bible uses the word wine. And, Jesus, and then uh, you'll get people who say, yes, but Jesus was young at the time and he didn't know yet that wine's a bad idea. Um, <laughs> also not true. Jesus knew what he was doing. So water, as you all know, is H2O, right? Uh, we know what water's made of. We also know what wine is made out of. Uh, it's got water, but it's also got like carbohydrates and alcohol in it and different things that make up the, the thing that wine is. There's a whole list there, and if I read it to you, you'd think I was really smart, but then you'd realize you can Google the same thing. Um, but there is this change at a scientific level that Jesus did, meaning Jesus apparently was engaged and allowed to use science. 
because the composition of the water scientifically changed to the composition of the wine. This is a science experiment that hasn't been repeated, that people can't do, and I know some people who would try, <laughs> but you can't, barring a miracle, do this. And yet in John chapter 2, Jesus apparently changes the chemical composition of water into wine. So he does something that's scientific. At a base level, the composition of what was in the jars changed to a different composition. Changed from this, or the, the chemical makeup that would make this, to the chemical makeup that would make this. And so things adjusted supernaturally. The problem for science is the process moving from water to wine is unexplainable barring a miracle. There's no outside influence. There's no way to test this or repeat this experiment outside of Jesus saying, ding, this is going to happen. This should be wildly encouraging to you because if you're in a situation or you've been praying about something that seems impossible, our God is actually able to change things at their base chemical composition level. This is something I love talking about when people who have um, addictions or sins and they think, I'm going to be stuck with this for the rest of my life. Um, and they don't believe that God can actually change the chemical makeup of a brain. God's actually able to do that. I'm not saying he's going to in every situation, but the ability of God exists to change the chemical composition of everything around us. Meaning, when the devil tempted Jesus with turning bread, with those stones into bread, Jesus would actually have that ability to look at a stone and change it at a base science level into something edible that was actually tasty. So if we go at this and go at science in a way that we decide that we're going to war against it, we have no movement. If we go at science uh, and then it's separate or we try to ignore it, or what happens, and this is experience, is that eventually we engage or encounter a place or a person for a lot of young people it's as they get older, they, and a lot of times it happens at school where they're taught how to think and they're engaged in thinking by people who hold a confrontational view against Christianity. And if young people haven't been taught to use their brains in the church, if they've been taught, sit down, shut up, repeat the party line, this is what Christian is, don't doubt. Then when they get to the place where the doubts are rather engaging, they have to abandon one or the other. And abandoning earth being round or circling the sun is much more difficult than abandoning the faith or the scriptures. And so we see Christians, when they're engaged in their thought, if they've grown up in an isolationist system or an ignorant system, walking away from the faith because the faith no longer makes sense because they've never been trained to engage their faith with their brain. Which sounds ridiculous, but it happens all the time. We are Christians because we said so. Don't think about it and don't engage it. 
And so these Christians try to ignore scientific issues that are going on in our world today, and then they go into an environment that engages those, and they have no ability to engage those issues from a place of their faith. Isolation. Uh, you end up moving away from the faith. If you have humility and you have knowledge, then you're able to move into an engagement between Christianity and your faith. Uh, sorry, Christianity, your faith, and science. I find science fascinating. I find that when we discover something, even if it seems to contradict the things that are in Scripture and that I believe about Scripture, I find it fascinating. Because at one point, there was a viewpoint that maybe Earth was a flat square with corners. Maybe. I've never been that far. So maybe it is like that. And you can engage that, but wouldn't it be ridiculous today to still hold that belief. So it becomes ridiculous in our day to hold to our scientific beliefs as if we've reached the pinnacle of understanding in our world. Here's what I mean. The things that we believe, right, well, let me back up. The things that you were taught to believe scientifically, like in your chemistry class when you were taught that there's electrons going around that thing in an orbit, have already been proven to be false. So the electrons that are connected to your protons and your neutrons that make you up, your electrons, actually can be somewhere else. They aren't necessarily rotating around you. And in fact, they can move from that somewhere else to over here without having moved from here to there. They were there and now they're here, but they didn't move from there to here. They just are. And so that model that you learned in high school, that you drew those numbers and you drew the thing around and you thought you knew something, has already been proven isn't true. So congratulations on knowing something not true. And as soon as we approach the science or the theology that we hold as no one can ever improve on this, we've eliminated knowledge and we've eliminated humility. Because at one point, the Christians used the Scripture to engage slavery. At one point, the Christians used the Scripture to condemn Galileo. Now, there are also plenty of examples of Scriptures that have held true over all of time. Virgin birth, resurrection, existence of God. There are some closed hand issues that we hold on to. Some things that we say, yep, this is as far as knowledge. God exists. That's as high as knowledge. You can't get somewhere higher than God exists. There isn't a way that someday you can disprove that because as soon as God doesn't exist, the scripture teaches he holds everything together and so as soon as you prove that, everything crashes on itself and nothing exists anymore. It'll be an interesting moment except no one will be there to observe it. <laughs> So, which means the moment doesn't even exist phenomenologically. So, <laughs> phenomenologically. So, which if you want to know science, learn phenomenology. Everything all of a sudden doesn't exist if you don't see it exist. It's fantastic. So, it proves the Trinity. Anyways, if 
we decide to stop engaging because we think we're as smart as we're ever going to get, it's just as bad as stopping to engaging because we don't think that it's going to benefit us. So the we're as the smartest people in the history of the universe attitude, I think, is just as bad as we're going to ignore that and walk away from it. This is, I want to show you Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. This is God's, uh, he's prophesying through his prophet, speaking through his prophet, explaining why he's condemning the people. And this, this is in a whole passage that uh, you, you might want to read, but it says this, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. You see that? My people, the people of God, are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. God is condemning the people and eliminating them from the ability to serve him. And I've looked at this passage and it's not just knowledge of God. It's knowledge. Because you've chosen ignorance, God is walking away from your ability to serve him in a meaningful way. Isn't that interesting? Now, knowledge alone, and you can read the New Testament, the New Testament teaches that knowledge puffs up. If you just have knowledge and you know you have smart friends like this, puff up like a puffer fish and they think they're hot stuff. Knowledge puffs up, whereas love and wisdom builds up. And so just having knowledge isn't the answer for Christianity. The knowledge in combination with humility is a place where the gospel can be shared and the glory of God explored in a way that is incredibly magnificent. So the more you learn, the glory of God actually increases. So that when you engage the natural world that's around us, you see it as the scripture teaches that the heavens reveal the glory of God. I was having breakfast with a guy this week and we started talking about how the universe is expanding because that's what you talk about. And uh, the universe is expanding and apparently what they're finding out is they, I love that they, uh, the people who are really smart are finding out that the universe seems to be expanding at an increasing rate. So it's not only expanding, but it's expanding faster, which is pretty neat because eventually it's going to reach a max speed, like the speed of light. And when it reaches the speed of light, the universe is expanding at the speed of light, and then we're able to see the light that's coming back from it. But if it's expanding at the speed of light, we'll never see the light that's coming towards us. So the universe is expanding in a way that you'll never be able to observe that it's expanding because it's expanding faster than the light can return to us, which really means is it expanding at all or is it just rolling over on itself? And you look at that and you go, therefore God doesn't exist. And I go, therefore God is really awesome. Like God pulls this stuff off that just seems to be incredible. And we can see it out there and then we can see it in here. And you're mowing your grass and you actually look at your yard and you're like, that, it blows my mind the way this works. Or that it rains here. Because water magically leaves the ocean and floats in clouds that don't fall 
and then it falls here. <laughs> and that's normal. Or you walk out in the rain and you go, like who, nobody built that. Except God apparently, if you understand the scripture in Genesis chapter one, which includes the creation story and Genesis chapter two, which retells the creation story from a different angle. So when we engage our world as Christians, I would encourage us not to engage it in a way that we're trying to eat all the Darwin fish. And if we can eat all the evolutionists, and I mean that metaphorically, then we win. Instead, because we have knowledge and because we have humility and we understand that Jesus himself said, I am the truth, then we would understand that all the truth that exists belongs to God. And anytime someone shows something that's true, it points towards God. It reveals who God is. And if it doesn't, then it will eventually be shown to be untrue. So I don't put my faith in the discovery that someone made because eventually these discoveries will lead to new discoveries and we'll find out the earth is round. Who knew? We'll find out that the earth rotates around the sun when we really shouldn't have condemned that guy. But if we can approach it with humility and knowledge, all of a sudden we'll be experiencing God not just in the Bible, but we'll be experiencing God all over the place. In a second we're gonna sing. You're gonna hear stuff, which is incredible. Like it, it actually is. And I don't just say that because some people can't hear. It actually is incredible that noise comes from up here, enters your ear, and then you experience pleasure because it's good noise. Then you're going to get in your car and you're going to push a little pedal, turn a little key, and magically go home. Some of you are going to go on vacation this summer. You're going to get into a big metal tube and float through the sky to another place. And you're going to complain when you're five minutes late. Not go it is amazing that God designed the world in such a way that we can build a floating metal can that a whole bunch of people get in. And so we can engage the world in a place of humility and knowledge, which gives us wonder, which is, opens up our world, which causes us to worship God more fully if we stop trying to destroy all the people who disagree with us and instead learn from them because there's things that they might show us that might be glorifying God, even though they don't mean to. Let me pray together. Let us pray together. Our God, we glorify you. Just by the very fact that while we sat here, we were breathing in an incredibly complicated system, a scientific system, our hearts kept working, and we were able to engage and think and grow and we're able to exist in this world of natural phenomenon which glorifies you because the scripture teaches that all creation, all creation teaches the goodness, the eternalness, and the divine nature of God. And so allow us to experience you through reading scripture, through worship, through prayer, through fellowship with our friends. But also God, Allow us to experience you and your glory through the world that exists around us. Give us that grace. In your name we pray. Amen.